0: Today we have Tim on the podcast and, um, basically you're doing some research in harm reduction for anabolic steroid use. Right. And so what, what did you, you reached out to me about as a participant in your
1: current research, tell us a bit about your research. Um, so my PhD was looking at, um, obviously harm reduction, uh, in terms of performance image enhancing drug use. Now it comes from a bit of a sociocultural framework cause I've got an ex, uh, an exercise science and applied sciences background, but then moving into psychology into that sociocultural, you know, why, uh, are men particularly inclined to change their appearance and in what ways do they do that? Um, the research that sort of, um, we've discussed a few times was looking at, uh, Firstly, how to bolster those harm reduction resources for men who are using performance and image enhancing drugs or anabolic androgenic steroids. And then more recently, um, chatted about women and and performance and image enhancing drug use and whether that's a, a growing issue, whether it's a worry, whether we've got adequate strategies in place. So I think in terms of men, we certainly I mean, we don't have adequate strategies in place. Okay. And then in terms of women, well, how could we, if they're even more marginalized group than men who are using? So. Mm.
0: So what's the, uh, so what's the issues we're trying to,
1: trying to solve or what are the problems you've seen that you're trying to resolve? Um, well, we know, we know that, and we've spoken about this, that prohibition's probably, um, not, not working very well. Um, and in terms of people using these compounds and things like that, it's, it's going to happen, particularly in strength-based sports, particularly, Mm. I mean, research has shown that we've got increases in recreational gym goers using these compounds. And it would be, you know, it's always good to make sure that it's a, a safe environment. So I think, there's a few levels of need here. There's the need for bloodborne virus and STI sort of safety, and that's done through needles, making sure that people know what, uh, what needles to use, what tips to get for the oils, um, how to swab the site, et cetera, et cetera. So there needs to be education around that. And our needle service providers here in Brisbane and Gold Coast and Sunny Coast are pretty good around that. Um, so I provide mm-hmm. a few trainings there for a few organizations, but um, certainly in more rural areas, it's still, um, still, we we need to do a bit more work there in terms of, you know, once you've got that covered, then I suppose it's compound selection, isn't it? So making sure that nobody's going from zero to a hundred and deciding, ah, balloon is the first, first place I'm going to go and I'm going to do a gram a week because I think that's obviously, um, that's not a starting point, is it? Where do they get that information from? Is that information vetted in any way? Is it, um, it'd be nice to see we've got forums, we've got good coaches and things like that. It'd be nice to see some more research or health-related research embedded into those practices. But obviously at that level, that's all taboo. So what do you do? Well, okay. What we can do is monitor maybe blood work, but people are still struggling to understand how to interpret that because it's so far out of the norm, isn't it? Mm. Mm. So in terms of coaching GPs or doctors in this area, we look at, or at least I look at, okay, if you don't want to prescribe, if you don't want to, you know, take away that criminal element, that's fine. And, and they've got their own reasons for that around ethics and other things. But, um, in terms of monitoring the patient, I think at least in our state, there's a lot more openness coming through now. So they're willing to look at those bloods. They're willing to check, you know, liver function, general health, have a chat with the guy, you know, or- So what, what
0: level are we trying to implement these strategies at? Are we taking it from, um, are you taking it to try and, like you said, the peer to peer kind of mm. approach or are we going to go through are you aiming to go through like from the levels of the medical industry filtering down? I mean, what kind of, uh, at what, level are
1: we trying to implement some of these harm reduction strategies? I think, you know, if you can imagine like a octopus tentacles coming <laughs> out, then I, I run a few dra- trainings for general practitioners, getting this stuff across. Then by doing so, anybody comes to talk to me about anything, I can say, I've, I've got somewhere that you can go that's safe, that doesn't have the stigma mm-hmm. and they're open to this, to at least monitoring you. Okay. And then at the needle service providers, there's that training there. This is how to engage with this group. And then sometimes they don't want to engage. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they just want to go in and grab their needles, go. So give them the right stuff and leave them alone Yeah, because that's, that's what works and we want to do what works. And then at the next level, I think Victoria, for example, has a great peer support program where they've got a steroid peer education a support worker now she directly deals with that population group whether it's just dropping off some supplies but also checking in on them seeing how they're going right seeing what they need what's going on monitoring trends in terms of uh what's going on at a at a black market level what compounds are so what are their their, their motivation
0: behind this is this like because i mean there's different this industry is got full of people who take different approaches to doing it in the way they help or educate or coach, coach it, whether it's in a way of, you know, to produce extreme levels of performance and physique changes or whether it is harm reduction. I mean, so what are these peers doing that are helping them? Is it just, is it a motivation to get them to not use like how you would with, I guess, other, um, illicit drugs, or is it, is it more teaching and educating them on how to use it
1: and what they need to be looking out for i think two twofold uh there's no if people want to stop using they'll they'll stop using but whatever the reasons right and we spoke about this i think a bit ago, whatever the reasons those reasons are theirs to resolve not ours right you provide them with a safe environment you provide them with a trusting environment you provide them with somewhere where they can start to feel comfortable and open about whatever. And then these issues normally resolve themselves. And then down the track, other addiction related issues get resolved. Performance is a little bit different. So we'll talk about that in a sec, but I think at that level, providing that safe support network is super important. And then from there, from there, after that, that goes on for a while from there maybe down the track you can start to ask questions like hey have you considered cutting down your use have you considered your motivations around use have you considered what what makes you want to do this or feel the need to do this but that's a discussion for i'm i'm talking 12 months minimum mm. you know that's that's the time you see hey you see a patient like that, maybe once a month or or more. Maybe the needle exchanges, you know, they're getting hundreds of barrels at a time. So you're not seeing them for a little bit if they're blasting, um, or or cruising even longer. So you've got very short little opportunities to make a good impression, and that's all about safety and trust. Or at least my research has shown that, particularly between interviewing both consumers. And service providers, okay. social workers, GPs, um, needle service providers, and the consumers. It's all about that rapport, that trust. And then maybe you ask that question like, hey, so what do you reckon?
0: Do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, obviously the population of people who usually are taking box stories, especially in the athletic field, are going to be people of, um, of of, you know, slightly higher, I don't know, how would you put it? Um I guess a le- less of a, a drug of dependency, people who are a bit more educated about the choices that they are making and that some of them are already take weighing up the risk-benefit ratios without without you know too much care on their own health to a degree. Mm. I mean, I mean, and I know some of these people would probably would, you know, could do with more intervention, but doesn't change what they were going to do. So their motivation towards the use of drugs in comparison to maybe some of your harder drugs, even though they're classed in the same, now they're classed in the same category.
1: 2014, yeah. Should it be treated
0: this in the same way or does it need to have take, be taken a different, different approach because I'm um, mm. it's a, I think maybe it stems maybe from how the drugs are being classed mm. and that it's treated as something that shouldn't be taken and, maybe it shouldn't, but it will and will always, but in comparatively also the, the, you know, not saying it's not harmful, but is definitely less harmful and can be done very smart in a way that can help people perform, or even just from a, you know, hormone replacement therapy standpoint, providing longevity and better, you know, I've seen people pretty happy, much happier on with their, with their lives, both mentally and physically being on hormone replacement therapy. Um, so with that into consideration, the population type, is there a different, is, is there, do you think there should be a different approach or is there a different strategy to that
1: or is it still the same? I think public health wise, it's a lot easier to say, these are all grouped together. So Mm. we tackle them with the same budget or the same funding or the same group of research. From a, from a real um, social wellbeing perspective, I see that there's slight differences between um, say AAS or PEDS and other drugs of addiction, right? We do have some research to say this hedonic effects, So there's that reward pathway that does get stimulated from say um, a testosterone or testosterone derivative, but that's slightly different. And you know, these are still mainly animal studies that are going on. Um, I do have a PhD student coming up to look, to look at this stuff. Um, so that'll be real interesting. We'll see what, what starts to happen. I'd really like to look at those dopamine reward pathways, but this term dependence. You know, there's a group of researchers in America that started to look at, um, back in 2011 and 12, um, out of, I think Belmont, it was started to look at this dependence and treatment options now i think with anything you've got prevention intervention treatment but everybody forgets or not everybody but it's forgotten about just management like management mm-hmm. and harm reduction in terms of performance i think it's completely different now so we're talking about optimizing what's mm-hmm. going on in terms of say something like powerlifting strongman um and this is a tool that job. And I noticed that there's almost a protective element around performance related goals. As soon as goals become image centric, that's when the use changes and the trajectory I've noticed changes. At least, um, in, in another group of interviews I did a while back, it was a big difference between bodybuilding sort of related, uh, or image related, Mm. uh, enhancement strategies versus uh performance related enhancement strategies. Certainly the literature will tell you there's links between sport and steroid use or things like yep. that. But there's a difference between somebody using for 12 weeks and then stopping for 12 weeks or stopping for a few years and then mm. having a double again. Mm. I think that anybody's going to dip their toe in a pond. Just you, if it's going to be long live, how safely can it be long live? If it's not, you know, maybe Just do it carefully, have a go, and then once you're done, stop having a go. But don't, don't make any, uh, don't have severely life-changing impacts from having a go. And that's where, you know, somebody injects wrong, hits a vein or or something, Mm. you know, they'll be a little bit uncomfortable, but if they share a needle with somebody, then that's, that's completely different, isn't it? If well, they run ten weeks of orals, sorry Ben.
2: No, no, it, it, it's just it's interesting. A couple of things are interesting. What you're saying, one, you're likening it. You, you keep saying addiction, right? So that, that there's obviously a psychological factor there. The the other thing is, um, I right, I know nothing about steroids. Okay. Where would, where would someone even go to get? good information if they say they say they did want to start where where could they even go to get this information it's funny that you speaking now here is the first time i've actually been made aware of the fact that obviously there's needle use involved so the the same risks are present with other kind of needle use like obviously it's it's a Mm -hmm. it's an obvious um risk factor for, say, a heroin addict that you don't share needles and all that kind of stuff. I've never actually heard it discussed about steroid use before. Um, and it, it's stuff like that. Like, where's somebody supposed to go for this information? Is, is it anywhere? Or
1: It's, um, so, and great point. Uh, at needle service providers, at the needle exchanges, mm. they've got, you know, pamphlets here and there that they hand out short pamphlets about how to inject and things like that. They've also in conjunction with, um, Andrew Preston and colleagues from Eng, I think they're from the UK. They've got a booklet there. Quinn, Queensland injectors health network who I tie in with quite closely mm. and do a bit of work with. They, um, they've got a steroid book as well. Um, and likely I'll, I'm putting together a few resources here and there, um, as well that I think will fit. But, you know, in terms of getting that, I think, an online platform. so Quinn released a, a high ground. it's called highground.org okay and I've written a, there's a, a section on that page that I've written up about um, safe sort of uh, harm reduction approach to use, yeah which mm. then I've gotten you know a, f- a fair few people to have a look at, and I said, "Hey, does this fit? What can I change? Pardon me, what can I change? What can I do better?" Um, and then consequently keep updating, keep upgrading. Be real nice to have like a, like a secret members group or like a password protected, like advanced sort of group, um, where there's, you know, bits and pieces written, but I think, um, down the track, there'll be sort of like live discussions facilitated or workshop discussions.
0: mm, The challenging thing is that you're in a, you're putting yourself in the sea of many other people that are doing the same thing, but for different motives and different Different mm. perspectives. So it's like there are there are secret membership groups. There yeah. are forums where you can join and talk about use. Yeah. And you know, might people might go into that thinking that is this a better way to do it, a safer way to do it, or they're doing it for performance. I mean, there and there might be other coaches who aren't educated who are trying to do a harm reduction process, but are still doing it wrong. Yeah. It's just how do you make yours the recognised standard to people go and see when in this industry, it's, 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 it's huge. And it just seems to be getting bigger, especially in the online presence of it. People being, you know, steroid coaches or drug, call themselves drug coaches. And, um, how do we work around that problem?
1: Well, what I was going to add is I think there's some great coaches here in Queensland and I think that they, they can provide you not only with the training and diet and things like that, but also Mm -hmm. they have that knowledge but there's a, there's a barrier there, isn't there around criminality around, um, and it's sort of been linked in with health when it's not necessarily health criminal things and legal things are, are those things Hmm. and health related things are over here. We really need to try and tease those apart, but I think the issue here is that how do you centralize it? I mean, there's the big difference between commercial gain and, Public safety and well being, and I always try and approach things from from that angle. So obviously, you know, research and uh, like academia, that's that's the the work, and this sort of fits in under that, but from a, a different perspective. And I think if we take the the harm reduction, social well being approach, then that's that's the way to do it. But it would it would suck to have a network of peer like peer workers here in Queensland and not be paying them. I think that's a a government funded initiative and there should be some um compensation for time i think that's reasonable not not for me i mean for the you know people that might fit into that network and i think it starts at a state level or maybe Mm. even a city level and then it builds to a national level and then if it goes further it goes further but that's the sort of progression i think
0: i think you're definitely right there in terms of payment i think most people who are going to be quite educated in this area are going to be people who are surrounded, you know, time for money. Um, and it is a lot of time. There's a lot of work you got to spend because it's a very one-on-one approach depending on how in depth you want to go with someone. It's a lot of time commitment, mm. you know, for, for one per, for one person to put in.
1: To but help. if a few of those lead, like lead coaches in Queensland sort of took that peer support, approach, right? And they just contributed an hour or two a month. You could split it if you had enough for a live facilitated discussion online, mm. or, you know, there's, there's ways that it can be done as a, um, public health initiative maybe. Mm. And then through that, maybe that will attract funding that allows for more time dedicated to those things. Cause so I think, uh, at the minute it's, it's a little bit ignored. You look at like, like Ben said, heroin or methamphetamine use. Now there's peer support networks in place for those. Yeah, They even get little certificates and things for their training, but peed users are constantly left on the sidelines or paid consumers. Sorry. And it's, um, it's not that anyone's better or worse or junkie or not junkie. Like that's not what this is about. It's about providing a harm reduction approach. That's mm. that fits the right places and even what with uh with what you said earlier about the needle sharing and stuff, well no there's not that much needle sharing unless you look at jail settings. But maybe vial sharing. Mm, okay. You know, if you if you share a vial with somebody else there's still little risks and things. So again it's got to be like specific for the for the group. Um and again, you know, are bloodborne viruses a problem? Well research tells us that it's not super big. Like steroid users are pretty good with this sort of stuff. Okay. Um So
0: with I remember when we first opened up this topic, you're you're talking about this having the differences between male and female intervention. So um, are there difference, differences differences the and approach to this support group when it comes to uh utilising it for men and women?
1: It'll be it'd be nice to have, um, I guess, uh, a woman, a woman who's a, or a female that's a support worker as well in that context. Yeah. I think it's, you know, relatability is a big thing. You, as a woman, you probably wouldn't want a guy sitting there and, and to some, to some level, but I think there's just that, that little bit of extra, um, relatability if it was yeah. another Another female saying, "Hey, I've done this, or this is this is what I know, and this is what I've done, and this is how I'm blending it together to um, help make you uh, help you make some choices, or give you the information to make the right choices." I think that'd fit real nice.
2: And um, so, so it, is it, does that is that also relate to the fact that um, are are the repercussions for women in terms of health issues? Do they differ from men? Drastically. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know if you know this, are are the motivations different as well? Because obviously if that, if that is the case, if you get different repercussions and different motivations, that would be no different from like, like, they're not relatable at all because they can't relate to what they're going through.
1: I think, um, with the long term health, like you're thinking about internal organ health, brain health, like there's some parallels, and then you're thinking about menstrual cycles. You're thinking about child right. bearing, but I think Gus can elucidate more around the motivation sort of side of things. Or I think you um, you well, you put up quite well. Yeah. So the first,
0: well, first there is a there is a difference in terms of the side effects that come from use of anabolic steroids with women comparison to men, and um, and the major difference is is that most of the in most cases and mo- for more of the symptoms is that the problems are usually permanent um, compared to wow. compared to men. I mean, there are some changes that men experience as well, but they're usually less um, problematic, like a bit more hair growth, you know, or something like that. And where someone's, you know, changes in menstrual cycle, the capacity to bear a child, or changes in their voice, or growths in various areas of the body that can't be then, you know, changed. Um, and then in terms of motivation, we come back to the uh, initial question is that, you know, what is the motivations driving, um, driving the issues? And how I found is that, especially if, if someone has, you we said, we're, if, if, have that, if it's feeding into a phys- massive physique change or looking at image change, um, from, When I'm screening, when people talk about it to me, I'm normally screening their motivation. And if it is driven through, um, uh, body through body image, it's, it's more of a mechanism that feeds into that same problem. Um, most, most of the time where the motivation behind, behind performance still being a selfish reasoning, um, but it, it doesn't seem to be as Problematic, but still has, you know, you still have those addictive properties that I, you know, in terms of the behaviors and choices they still make, but they seem to not be still be centered around what is going to be optimized for performance rather than the body image is more about. I've seen a lot take more and take more and take more because it keeps feeding into the same image problem. So, as a coach, when people do bring it up, it is. What is the motivation behind that choice? What has led them to those decisions? Mm. And can I educate them into, into making um, or educating them into showing them are there solutions to the problem we're trying to solve through normal training, yep. nutrition, health means? And most cases, uh, yes. There's only, you know, if someone comes to me who is at the absolute top of their level and want to make it to a higher level, and they've put in many years of work, then yes, it's gonna be a massive advantage and it is what's gonna take them to that, is gonna take them to that level if they yep. don't, if they, you know, if that's, if they've done everything they can. However, there's always room on the table without the use and the question to use it or not, is usually most of the case you you don't. Um, I remember quite a few years ago um, in powerlifting, about a decade ago really is that nutrition wasn't really seen as a big thing in, in, in powerlifting. And I was the first person from, you know, from a bodybuilding background, just like to come across into powerlifting. People hadn't made that transition yet. You know, so I, hadn't, of people, so I had a fair bit of knowledge on nutrition. And at the time, a lot of my clients, um, especially female clients were getting really crazy, strong, really crazy, strong, um, uh, none of them were using at the time and, uh, it can have there it just, it just kind of been one example to show that, you know, something small, like, you know, well, nutrition isn't small, but, you know, changes in methodology about how we can approach, you know, some of the changes that these people want and educating people in that can show that you can still make very elite level and advanced prog- progression without, without the use. And then if you do come to do come into use, it's then also if their motivation is to take take a lot to make it far, it's also given the education to understand that a lot does not need to be taken. Um, more often, not especially with women, I've seen that less less is more. Um, and I've seen com- seen comparisons and and and, and witnessed it with many other um, many other. Um, women where I know what, usually know what a lot of other people are, are taking and just gossip spreads in, um, when you're close, when you're, you know, in depth in the community. And so, so you hear things and you know, um, and I've like had obviously a lot of athletes at a high level come to me knowing what they've taken as well, mm. but I've, I've seen people experience far superior growth or even similar growth and changes in performance with very minimal dosing, which means that the harm on that individual is a lot less. And usually what is less harmful, especially with with women, is usually going to still produce far more results than taking more. It just becomes a point of diminishing yeah. diminishing returns. And I am forever, and I do have to take a slow approach with some people in terms of trying, like how you were saying that you might take 12 months. And it's kind of the same for me. You know, I do have to take time and say like, can we r- reduce this? And when I, once I've usually built the trust of some of these athletes, then it's like, all righty, um, here's like start to present information, trial, out, trial something different through other means. And, and comparatively where I have seen high doses and then we've done other performance with low doses, we usually perform better because in general, what, what's, re, what's, what's going to reduce harm um, is going to preserve, you know, health. And what preserves that allows you to recover, perform and do what you need to do to get what you need out of training and nutrition. Is that,
1: does that sound like kind of, well, more consistency, longer time, you know, you're not Mm. taking a heap and then suddenly getting frustrated when you're off and quitting Mm. or anything like that, you know, there's always that helps doesn't it mm. consistent training nutrition recovery and that's looking at that motivation again isn't it um, where it's saying like you know if people
0: are having that motive to take that shortcut it's then showing them and teaching them how how that this here is a here is a better here is a better way but at the same time I never take it off the table for them because if I take it off the table then do I close them off to ever them ever than telling me or expressing that to me. This, this, and well, this is where it, it happens.
2: You're making a psychological intervention there, like, like mm. you,
0: and this is a theme
2: in every podcast we have, but most of your work is almost therapy because the way you describe how you tackle that is very similar to the way you describe how you tackle diet with people who chronically undereat, or like it's the same kind of dynamic. Mm um how, how much of a just for somebody who has no idea how much of a cheat code is it like I, I think that i think that from for somebody like me that's how it's that's how it's viewed right like if i juice in a week i'm going to like double my numbers or i get i guess um aesthetics wise um it's more difficult because
0: you, you, no, you, not really. You, can, you, exactly. you will
2: never be where you need to get to, aesthetics-wise. There's just bigger, bigger, more, more, or whatever. But
0: the common variable to not people being successful is there is their own life choices, their own training, their own nutrition, their own habits. Like, yes, you take steroids, you'll make you'll make initial growths and changes mm. to your body, but it's quite it's quite short-lived if you're not doing the right things with your training anyway. It enhance, it should, performance enhancement drugs is meant to enhance exactly what you're trying to do. Right. It will give you an initial enhancement, um, but I've seen it a lot where if there's a reliance on just utilizing, and and people i have seen it where people just utilize steroids to make their changes, they're going to get stuck in the cycle of wanting to keep taking more, it's and it does make track. more yeah. progress, but they're not doing anything about it. They're training nutrition. This is where I look at the interventions behind what are some of the other solutions to the problem they're trying to solve. And that's just the, the common coach question I'm asking anyway. What problems am I trying to solve? And trying to give them solutions, training, nutrition, mm. lifestyle solutions to to those to those problems. And steroids is mm. is 99.9% of the time not, not, not going to right. be the, not be the case. And so, when I've seen a head of individuals with, you know, that's kind of... Idea that you know take it to take a shortcut. They take it then they take some more and then they take more and then they take some more (laughs) And then they want to cut so they take you know clombuterole on trend and then they want to get bigger and they'll take some other compounds and their body will make make changes to the degree that that stimulus no longer works and They will continue to run through these cycles. They'll come off and they completely Lose all their progress because that was their only form of stimulus and so so then when someone who is quite smart and understands that they've utilized the maximal capacity of, or close to the maximal capacity of their physio- physiology, then, then it does act as enhancement. And because they know how to train, they usually sustain most of their progress. There's usually, uh, there's usually, you know, a, a reduction in performance of about, you know, say 20 or 30%, but they usually, uh, they, they usually Bridge that gap pretty quickly, um, if they know what they're doing. So it does create an enhancement and it will create permanent enhancement if you're smart at what you're doing.
2: Yeah, so it's a false multiplier, but,
0: but ten, it will ten times to make progression is... will always, you know, will always take longer naturally. Yeah. Um, at that level. For a novice, it barely makes a difference. I, I as you see novices the the progress you're going to make just from training nutrition alone is going to be re- is going to be more advanced than than no matter how much steroids i ever take mm. you know i can take you know i can take it doesn't matter how much i take i'm never will make a gains as a noob as a noob would, in their first two or three years yeah. so they shouldn't really be take, they sh- they should not take it anyway yeah so that's why that, mo- that motive matters, because then we're here to then educate them into showing them. So then, then this is also then stemmed further than just, you know, utilizing, uh, you know, how to manage harm, harm, reduce with just uses of steroids, but then showing people and educating people in areas that if this is your motive and the problem you're trying to solve, then here, here, is, here are better solutions.
1: Uh, like if you want to look better. Mm. And here's the other pieces of the puzzle, yeah. things like that. Yeah. But is it, is it as quick is, is that going to do what two mils of trend and two mils of test a week can do for me?
0: If you're smart Um, enough. yes. If you're smart enough, it can, it can. And it just says, it's like, it just depends on what level you're looking at. Um, If you're good at your job, if you're good at, if you're good at your job, you can make progress as fast as someone who doesn't know what they're doing, taking steroids. And I think people get have create motivation through through what other people are doing right, and trying to find shortcuts to that. Where you see it all the time now. It didn't happen so much when I first started because there weren't it wasn't as a bigger community, and we're all the initial people who were getting strong. We're all getting strong together, you know. So there wasn't really many people who were stronger than 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 us when we were first starting. Um, But by means of the standard today, we weren't that strong, you know. And now with today's standards all those initial people that we initially trained with are the really strong. Are the really strong people and people will look up to that and want to get there by taking by taking a shortcut, which then causes problems because like the same thing, the motive behind it, which then the solution there to getting that strong is is many, many, many decades of training in diet and consistency where yeah, the, no the, steroids gonna bridge that gap. Um, but this is how I kind of educate my clients and athletes who come to me with that question, whether they want to start taking it or not. Um, I even bring, bring, even bring the topic up, you know, just in case they have been thinking about it and they might not want to tell me and that's mm. happened too. They're taking it without me knowing and they're not doing it quite right. So, um, I'll always preemptive it to then at least, you know, 'Cause they'll be if they're getting more competitive, it's like, okay, there's something driving these people, you know. So I've got to bring the topic up and clearly around. And somebody was like, no, nah, I never wanna take it. It's like, cool, that's great. You know, tell me if you do. And that's about it. Um So
2: so on the, on the on the back to the public health side then. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> sorry, what what does this actually look like as a as a public health issue? Because obviously if we, I mean, maybe, maybe ending prohibitions a bit too much. I mean, it'll happen at some point. Um, but what, what are we dealing with on a population-based level that would cause the government to actually go, we need to fix this problem? Is it enough of a problem?
1: Mm. I think, so the data that we've got from, say, Australian uh, health and welfare, we've got 0.3%. Of our population, right? A Agree. Oh, sorry, sorry. The most recent one, I think it was point six or point seven. So you know, nearing. What's that? At least eight hundred thousand, seven hundred thousand, something like that. Sure. Um,
2: Which isn't insignificant.
1: Um, Sorry, no, it's not because we don't have a hundred million. Look, it's a, it's actually sorry, it's a lot less. Was but still, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. So. I think that's an underrepresentation. I think you combine that with two things: we've got seizure data from uh, the federal police here mm. that's saying that the weight of steroid seizures is increasing and the quantities are increasing right. year to year to year. I think we've got we've also got data from the needle service uh, providers that's saying that about fifty percent of new injectors, their first drug that they're injecting is performance in dancing drugs or steroids. So we've got high percentages, those rates of people going into needle exchanges to get needles of those people. It went from 2% to 7% between 2008 and 2012. And then it's gone up again to, I think, um, 12% or so maybe right. about 12% in 2017, 18. Don't have anything newer than that, but I'm sure it's still progressively mm. going up. So people that that shows me that it's increasing. The proliferation of strength based sports shows it's probably increasing. Yeah. And the fact that there's more access to the compounds is showing increases. I mean recently Matt, uh Dunn and I from, from Melbourne we looked at the impact of COVID on peed consumption and things like that. Oh, okay. Now because there was a few things that we looked at, but I think one of the more interesting findings was that the impact of, of COVID didn't necessarily reduce access and that's because of these online markets and these dark web vendors Right. and because of that, the way I interpreted or the way that we interpreted that was that this is actually great harm reduction, right? People don't have to stop based on lack of compounds or choices or anything like that. Mm. They stop because, or they can drop their use because they still have access to what they need and they can just either change, change accordingly. Oh, competitions are out, can't get to the gym, whatever. I will drop down to a cruise or I will, I will think about stopping because I've got access to the PCT that I would need, or I've got access to the, the compounds. And I think that's great Yeah, on, on one level. Obviously on a legality level, that's a completely different discussion, but at a from a harm reduction standpoint, that access to compounds is great. I think because it makes people, as soon as people get worried or think that, Oh, it's not there. I don't have this. The choice is driven by fear Mm. or by worry or by things like that. It's not, you know, a calm sort of choice that it should be. Oh, can't get to the gym. It's probably no point of taking so many things, but it's okay. It's there. I can get it when I need it. And therefore, you know, I think on the flip side, that's, you know, all that discussion is, is limited by legal things, uh, legal issues and things like that. But PCT access and access to compounds to, um, you know, reduce blood pressure or, um, I guess save, um, other elements of your health. That's on the table for for doctors to prescribe, for GPs to prescribe, you know what I mean? That's still a a public health initiative that we could look at. Willingness to prescribe these compounds for either to encourage break-taking behaviors because we're seeing that people aren't taking breaks. Their blast cruise is like the norm. Now that COVID data showed us almost everybody out of the sample all over Australia was, (laughs) that's the choice. Blast cruise high dose, low dose, high dose, low dose. And, you know, if we, maybe, maybe we can harm reduce that, but if we could say, Hey, this, you know, you can get some HCG pretty easy. Now you can get Clomid Nolva pretty easy. Now you can get whatever other stuff you need, get your bloods monitored. Maybe people would be more open to having a break. Mm -hmm. Openness to having a break might lead to, you know, openness to reducing dose and then other things start to open up.
0: And then, and then that becomes more expensive too. It, that becomes mm. more expensive too if people are, you know, trying to un- underground source these, these, you know, post-course therapy solutions. And they can be very, they can be very expensive. Mm. And if you do it through as a, if you treat it as a medical health problem.
1: yes Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: but we discussed this before, say so, uh, a little bit, and I guess to get your interpretation of it too, is that, the, you know, the criminalization of the drug use also creates different questions and then, and different solutions. How do you think the legalization or, you know, keeping it, um, illegal, how does that change the scenario for you? Or does it help what you're
1: trying to do? Mm. Oh, look, the, the legality side is, I think outside of the scope in some ways. I mean, I think the best example, so I'm, I'm looking at running a self-compassion, we're, we're doing a self-compassion uh, intervention, Griffith Union and I, uh, some researchers there, looking at uh, people on parole and transitioning out of prison. I think self-compassion, that framework, is the same framework that can be applied here rather than a, a legal framework or a criminal framework. Um, so I'm working with the criminology Institute. We're looking at things like common humanity, mindfulness, things like that, and how that's going to, um, everybody makes a mistake or everybody makes choices that perhaps later down the track, they might, uh, have thought that they would want to reconsider. Right now with that, that framework in mind, the criminality or the legality of these substances should start to drop off from people's minds, right? Because this is a choice that they're making at one point in their life. They might not make this choice forever, they might. It doesn't matter, but if you approach it from a compassionate framework, then perhaps we can start to just think about the health and ignore these legal consequences. Because really, some guy getting pinged with a couple of vials in his bag and suddenly he's got to go to court, is that, is that criminal or is that just unlucky? If there's hundreds of other ones doing it, what are we, what's that protecting? Is that meant to be protecting him? Cause certainly my research would show and has, has told the story that as soon as that happens, the trajectory for that person rapidly shifts and they start to get involved with other groups or other people or, or start to do more crime and more, more intense levels of antisocial behavior or whatever you want to call it, at least from the qualitative research I've done into wow. these focus groups, things like that. So I think in, I know I'm going in a big circle, but I think yeah. in blending those, those approaches together, really that legal aspect should at least somewhat be informed by a social wellbeing, public health perspective that really, okay, maybe it's, it's illegal okay, cool. Well, maybe the scheduling shouldn't be so harsh considering it's not changing border seizures in terms of Queensland. Queensland has the harshest penalties out of any other state and we're still, still (laughs) more weights coming in, more vials are coming in. It's not stopping anything. So perhaps thinking about, well, what other strategies might, um, stop this behavior, maybe more prevention initiatives at school. Maybe more pathways rather than you know from court sending these people to a recognisance program that's fitted for heroin or methamphetamine, maybe we should have a specialized program that captures mm. these and and you know moves them away from those choices certainly I mean a lot of a lot of guys have sort of said it'd be great if doctors would just prescribe it and through my discussions with, with that side, they've got their own sort of reasons and ethical and moral obligations Mm. around that. And, um, certainly down the track of somebody's deficient or something like that, that's a different story. But I mean, you know, there, there needs to be instead of a a punitive sort of solution, maybe some sort of support or compassionate solutions, safe environments, things like that might be. Uh, a little bit nicer might actually start to flesh out that, that motivation and the motivation for use might've been bullying or might've been actual other people's antisocial behaviors on that person. And they've made a choice and that choice isn't necessarily permanent, but certainly the repercussions on a legal level can be permanent for that person. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah. I think hmm. so. What a, back to your question, what do we do? I think, you know, keep pushing social wellbeing and public health and put things in place. If this isn't going to change, that's fine. We'll just put structures and mechanisms in place to support those people, support that safety and then support, support them through making, you know, choices related to other things. I don't know, focusing on, you know, training without that stuff for a while or focusing on music or art or, you know, whatever. It's just something for a little bit, even. How do you make,
0: how do you, how do they make these places safe for people and not a place where, you know, where government intervention for gaining information on, on activities, mm. you know, um, cause that'll be maybe the concern for some people. I guess it's like, if they're going to be open about it to people Mm. that in an organization that is going to be what, you know, monitored or regulated with, then how does that, how do we, how does that make, how do you make that feel safe and how do you prevent it? These people from, you know,
1: being, I guess, investigated. Mm. I suppose you're making sure that it's exclusively uh, that's why I think I like the research setting, you know, exclusively in an academic research sort of setting, it fits mm. exclusively in a health setting. It fits. I suppose as soon as you bring in government or criminality elements or, uh, government employees that might shift and mm. certainly wouldn't want to exclude them, but you've got to make sure that they're willing to sit within your framework rather than a punitive, Um, you know, black and white sort of right and wrong thing. Mm. Um, but really you're you're right. That's probably going to scare a few, it, it certainly with, um, other drugs of addiction, you know, people are worried about phone conversations or things like that. I think there's some crossover there and the invite, you know, the ethical, the ethical framework that say universities can have by leading these sorts of things is what's going to stop, you know, that sort of monitoring that you, you might want. I, th- I think that's the way, the way forward public health university health setting. And that's where that should sit, you know? And so that shows that, that, that shows,
0: it's almost like that shows your case to why this should be, you know, protected kind of sanctioned or something for them to discuss. Is that what you're trying to, is that what you mean? That the research setting allows it to be more officialized setting to then establish these programs?
1: Yeah, I think at least in like a piloting or trialing sense, it's sort of, you know, let's, what we're doing now isn't working. So let's see if this Mm. framework like works and just give us a little bit of time and let's see if it works. And I think under that sort of, you know, we'll see what happens. Certainly. I don't think, you know, that the like the punitive sort of issues aren't going to stop, but at least, um, if that's going to keep happening, if we can provide adequate support around that, that'd be great. Mm. But, um, can't do anything about, you know, police or, or government surveillance or things like that, that might or mightn't happen. I suppose there'll be some level of, um, ethical obligation or perhaps some sort of data protection policies. Right. Mm. That's normally what fits within university research, but, um, also I think looking from the outside in those types of organizations might be able to respect what we're trying to do in the sector and might, you know, Mm. just give it a break for a little while and see if, if this, this works and has good positive outcomes. Mm. And then we can start to try and cross collaborate and things like that. You know, it's one thing, surveillance for, um, you know, crime, crime, and then for this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it just makes it unfortunate because I know some of the reasons they implemented these strategies for the harsher categories was to get bigger punishments for people who are uh who are dealing and which is the you know the, the drug smuggling and then the heavy distribution and then the little little guys you know suffer who are just trying to do what they wanted you know for their own obviously their own selfish reasons but then like you said they're immediately classed as a criminal and. It's a bit harsh but, but it is a victimless crime if you if you're doing it to yourself i guess its, it's your own it's your, it's your own body you're the victim then aren't you correct yeah <laughs>
2: yeah so um i mean it's interesting like do you th- do you think anybody thinking about using p d s r- really is scared? of the criminality aspect of it. Well, Be-
1: they don't, they don't know. Like often research tells us that they're not necessarily aware that at least in Queensland, it's zero, you know, pardon me, up to 25 years in prison. See, right, You're not going to get a 25 year sentence for you but, know, a vial or something, but. But know. I had
2: no idea. Like that's the first time I've heard. I I, I knew, I knew they were um, illegal, but are they are they heroin illegal or are they marijuana illegal? Or I didn't realize there were any actual legal repercussions. I presumed there would be seizures.
1: Same level as heroin or methamphetamine. That's that's fucking insane. insane. For (laughs) Queensland.
2: Queensland. That's crazy. To just Queensland?
1: Yeah, Victoria and and New South Wales. I think they're shifting, but uh, Mm. at least in the last decade, they had a a different scheduling. I think it was a schedule four or something like that. Mm. Um, we shifted in 2014, uh, 13 in line with those VLAD laws and everything. They decided to also shift the, um, steroids. Certainly, um, wow. Wendell Rosavir from, uh, Stonewall medical center, um, who are, um, I'm a big fan of, um, and he's, he's come to some of my trainings and we've worked together on a few things, but he, um, he says that that he's trying to change that um scheduling, and there's a few other people on board, but um he's working at that policy change level to try and said that it was due to um not due to evidence, and there's other political motives for doing that, yeah, um, so I think down the track, like we might get some change around it, but at a policy level, you really need to provide enough evidence to say that this is this is a public health concern and not a legal concern. Mm. I guess at another level, here's, here's the thing, you know, you, if you start using performance and drugs or steroids or whatever, then suddenly maybe you, you don't see like the aggression increase or the other things increase. So it might lead to different choices and different trajectories. And therefore that's, the public health perspective on the flip side that people are concerned about. Right? So there's this idea of violence or things like that. Now, again, just had a paper except published, um, looking at exploring that relationship between steroids and violence. And at least from my data, it looks like the guys that are using none of them actually performed any antisocial or violent behaviors, Mm just from steroids, it was always in conjunction with alcohol and other drugs or peers. Mm. So those were the two other things that required them to, and they all engaged in like some level of violence, like a, a fight or something like that in a public place, yep. um, leading to uh, arrest or hospitalization or something like that. But it was never, it's not like they were walking around on the street and just cause they were on, did they decide to get into a fight? It was fueled in other settings. Yeah, I think that's an important part of it. And, and again, Matt Dun from Deacon and I were looking at a systematic review, teasing apart the last 50 years of evidence, uh, looking at violence and anabolic androgenic steroid use, and whether there's a link there. So there's a difference between aggression and antisocial sort of personality traits mm. and actual outcomes. So maybe guys can use these sorts of things, and you know maybe they can be cranky or whatever, but mm-hmm. it, I think at a public health level it's only really a worry if they're hurting other people, whether that's verbal or physical, but yeah. if they 're not, they can just be be as angry as you want like yeah. <laughs> in, it's, it's not year to and, be angry. Yeah. like be cranky that's fine, just don't take it out on anyone else so if there's enough evidence to say that, then perhaps well, maybe the scheduling. That maybe that's a way where we can start to look at other mm. change. I think that's you know, we're we're talking about harm reduction and this and that. There's the the public health perspective for everybody else. Like, oh, we don't want a bunch of, you know, giant guys walking around that are angry that are gonna hurt people or intimidate or anything but like that. The
2: classic like roid rage. I mean, but but that is that is the common viewpoint. Like like someone on steroids is imbalanced, right? That that is that is one Viewpoint of people taking PEDs is that they are unhinged in some way because of that use.
1: I think it and research will tell us. Um, at least you know there's higher rates of of mood disorders or of mm. personality related disorders. But those directions can sometimes that can be pre existing and therefore yes. amplified yeah. by this, or it can be as a component of the use. The issue that stigma causes is that people then don't reach out for help or they're just labeled as junkie or yes. Yeah. roid rage or whatever. And then suddenly they're ostracized and then suddenly all of this stuff's amplified tenfold and there's no support and then it just gets worse. And then we hear about the incidences where, Mm. you know, somebody's having real, real mental health problems. Yeah, um,
0: there's definitely, it does, it does have an effect on people's mental health if same thing, not educated or supported in the right way, especially when people, especially I found the most when people come, come off or when. Let's say for example, they've been using it for some time and they get duds because it is an underground market where it's not the purity of it is things. Exa- and as a coach, I should get people to test, test their vials. Um, cause you can get little lab kits now that can actually test the quality, quality of it. And then also in conjunction with blood tests, you can, uh, uh, you know, um, you can test the quantity or its effectiveness. So guys,
1: just on that, see there's Ben, there's an important thing that should be given to GPs, they wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily, you know, be saying, go and test it. We can't test it for you, but go and test it or send a mill away to this lab. Mm. That's part of the public health tie. And, and mm. I think that's, that's good. That's important comparing to blood work mm. doing the, the testing. That's so, the type of thing. I mean, I mean that's I what,
2: that's what they do. Sorry. Like, to um, I they? think
0: is it,
1: if, if, if people
0: are looking at it, it's called ROID test or ROID kit you can buy it online um they're in australia now so i think it was uk based or canadian based one of them and then now it's available in australia so um that is for anyone um and now in terms of the mental mental health aspect when when their levels testosterone levels do have vast fluctuations including the suppression of testosterone after use so when you're using the, your natural production is reduced and that has a can have a mental health effect in terms of creating, especially in men, uh, high levels of anxiety and depression, um, when those levels get too low. Similar symptoms to someone who already would have um low nat- naturally low testosterone, is they have usually a high tendency to experience um anxiety and depression a little bit more. And for someone, you know, who might be used to having high testosterone feeling good Um, And that good feeling that they get from the testosterone, I can't remember the exact science and the neurochemistry behind it, but there are changes in, 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 in that, which then, um, you know, fast, 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 fast drop in use can create this, um, create this, uh, from how I've been explained is like, um, you, you gain, you gain, you know, you get a higher output of, you know, you get the, young, you know, in the dopamine reward systems and a few other um, neurotransmitters. And then when you drop, drop the use that becomes this, you know, massive difference where we're not stimulating that same, same responses. And then for these individuals they create, uh, can create mental health problems where we have uh, differences in the way we, um, the way we feel. And so yeah with the mental health aspect if we're not utilizing proper post-course therapy and not understanding how that is or understanding or testing the vials we use and getting blood tests then we can ensure to protect ourselves from those massive fluctuations that you might experience um and in terms of the rage from my own um, personal experience i've seen with clients and athletes is that it doesn't cause It doesn't cause rage, but there are various compounds I've seen to elicit uh, more aggressive responses. Well, Um, you want
1: those for competition sometimes though.
0: And a lot of people do take those. So it's like, um, usually, usually, usually Tremblone is the kind of one here where people, some, and it it is very dependent on each each individuals that, you know, if they want to take Tremblone, which is, um, which has um, strong property has a lot of side effects, but a lot of properties for physique enhancement and and performance. Um, uh, people must tread carefully because some people um, some people have more aggressive tendencies from from the use of that from what I've observed with people, and some people don't. Um, it is really just dependent on that in depend on that individual, um, and the other ones like halo tests and people use that as a as a form of actually purposely getting more aggressive for competition um but it doesn't necessarily mean that these people will engage in antisocial behaviors they just might be more aggressive um i usually hear it from their partners mm. a lot of the times <laughs> um but not in a bad way they're just more aggressive you know in different aspects of their life but it doesn't have create this you know roid rage where where people are spontaneously getting mad and smashing
2: the house up and all that kind of stuff
1: yeah yeah your thoughts on that i think it's that's that's a media thing it's not even legal yeah. or a public health thing that's a media mm. thing mm. you know people use drugs and go crazy or some Mm. stuff like that. Mm. And suddenly that's the impression everybody has. And then you've got to do all this reparatory work to try and, and fix that. Certainly like, you know, if people start using extreme trend doses for like a long period, they're probably not going to feel very good. It's probably going to be some stuff Mm. upstairs to address. Um, I'm talking, you know, a lot for a long time. Um, Leading to like suicidal ideations and things like that. But other drugs will do that too, as well. Of course. You use even something like cannabis, you've got a risk of a, psych- a psychotic episode. I think uh, 11% of first users have that risk, and that's people are willing to take that risk. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, with this as long as, as long as it's, you know, purposed appropriately for the competition, as long as that aggression isn't translating to verbal or physical abuse anywhere, then, um, what's... I mean, I guess somebody could argue that perhaps from a, from a public health, again, from like a, like a, like a social, uh, cultural perspective or something, Mm Oh, it's intimidation if people are walking around and looking quite big and yeah, yeah, and yeah. whatever. But I think that's a that's that's a an argument that's passed like decades ago, and we've moved on and we're accept we're, if we're meant to accept bodies of all shapes and sizes and be mm. body positive. Then, at the same time, we've got to be body positive in in this respect, don't we? There's plenty of BOPO type research out there. There's plenty of fitness inspiration, and so. Well, you've got to take all the ends of the spectrum if you don't want people to be obese and overweight. Yeah. And apparently that's a problem and exercise adherence is an issue. Well, then unfortunately that's what come, this is part of what comes through uh, pressing health and well being. Some people just take it to certain levels. I mean, recreational uses is increased and that's fine as long as it doesn't translate to, uh, undesirable social aspects, then there shouldn't be a problem. And that's again, something that c- can easily be pushed through peer networks mm. that are, that are supported at a, at an education or research academic institution level with not for profit organizations like Quinn, like a university being yep. engaged in that and, and the the re- relevant, I guess, industry stake stakeholders as the, the consumers and the coaches and the whoever. I mean, that's one way to say, hey, hey, just don't, don't do any of this stuff. And if you see anybody doing this stuff, call them out and stop it. And then we, you know, as a community, won't have these sorts of things popping up. Because suddenly, you know, if old mate Joe or something starts running around with a machete, and you know he's been on trend for about twenty weeks. That's not a good look for him, yeah. For the community, for anyone. Mm. But mm. having that support network there would probably have stopped, old mate, from doing yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. somebody yeah. would have said, "No, no, no you got it, like totally enough."
0: Down. And like you said, it that ex- usually extends from other problems
1: in their lifestyle as
0: well. Mm. And then, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, the steroids get the bad rap and then get get um, demonised more by the media, which then makes it harder for you for what you need to do, or any of us do with the use of it. Is that it? I it, mean, if it's in this, if it's in their system, no matter what they did, that was the problem.
1: Mm. And I've seen that in heaps. It's like with any drug, though. So, yeah. Ah, oh, that was the, and you know, like let's let's not be silly and say oh it didn't contribute like Mm -hmm. i'm sure there was a contribution in that trajectory like the, you know at some level but let's not like a all the blame doesn't sit in there like
2: well nobody in the same way i think it's a people have accepted now that nobody just takes let's go with meth amphetamine nobody just takes methamphetamine because they're a completely healthy, balanced individual. There are numerous other factors there that lead to that behavior, and they don't go away when they take the drug. So you, you can't say that the drug's the only reason they're doing anything else, right? And and it's the same. Like I don't. When we're, we're talking about this, we're talking about PDS like it is a mental health issue and it is an addictive drug which is well, in my experience really rare like that's the other thing it's it's very rare that it's spoken about in those terms um, mainly because it isn't really spoken about I guess um, but I don't think anybody completely mentally healthy with everything in check I don't think anybody like that would be as likely to take them in the first place, right so there's always going to be other things going on. I mean, would you, would you agree? I mean, I don't, I also don't want to make the mistake of saying everybody who everybody takes P D and mentals, cause that, that's not true.
1: That's not true. Like, no, no, but let's like, let's look at, like, let's look at that. So would, is instead of putting on this perfect, like perfectionism construct and say, oh, oh. It, oh sorry, everything's in check and I don't take drugs and yeah, things yeah, yeah. are great our society as a whole has moved in a direction where we've got initiatives around mental health. Mm. And so it's okay not to be okay and all that stuff. Right. And by extent, then we accept that people are going to do these things, but Mm. that doesn't, that doesn't take away from who they are. And that doesn't mean that they're not healthy and that doesn't Mm. mean that they, you know, this is a snapshot of their life and whether they do it for five or 10 years, that's still five or 10% of their hundred year, long life, I guess the concern might be like, yeah, I suppose substance use in terms of research again has links with antisocial behaviors or has links right. with, uh, victimization, like bullying, things like that, particularly yeah. for, for peds has links with, um, you know, depression, self-esteem issues, pre existing, and then being exacerbated or right. things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, and then there's plenty of, there's plenty of those outliers where somebody just tries it and then falls into a pattern of addiction Mm. and suddenly there's stigma ostracization and things like that. But really like, just because life's like, it's, it's under the table and over the table, isn't it? And suddenly when somebody's sitting here, like, it's okay, if you've got a business suit on and you're, um, you know, at, at a bar on Fridays going through bags, but suddenly, you know, you, you're shooting oil into your leg or into, into your butt and that's not okay. Mm. Or like just because that's considered, you've got everything in line and we just don't talk about this. Well, suddenly started talking about mental health and substances are a component and contributed to that. So I guess everything should be on the table then. And everything should be a point of discussion from the point of public health again, and not from a "oh, that's naughty, like you jail." Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, the,
2: the classic example. But when you talk about any drug, is that I mean, overwhelmingly, the most harmful one's probably alcohol, right? The, the legalized one. I mean, more happens as a result of that than any of the others. And um, I mean, I'm paraphrasing there, but I believe that to be true. Um, and yeah, the only difference is one is socially accepted. I mean, one's even woven into our social fabric. Like every time you have a celebration, we go and get wrecked. Like so people go and get wrecked, right? And that, that's like a common, common thing to do. But somebody taking a kind of balanced dose of PEDs and doing it in a semi-balanced way is frowned upon more. And and it's the same. I mean, it used to be the same with marijuana. It's it's not now. That's almost like a that's almost like everyone's doing it, and that's okay, even though it's not technically legal. But yeah, that that hundred percent the ostracizing, and I also think from from what I've seen anyway, it's almost seen as like a a bit of a joke to the public. Whereas like if you, if you say methamphetamine or heroin, people think that's like a very serious thing <laughs> but steroids are viewed as almost like comical you see somebody taking steroids and or you hear about someone taking steroids and the general person will you know make jokes right mm. it's not viewed in the same light whatsoever
1: oh he's an addict so what's he addicted to steroids ha! <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know like the yeah. whole roid rages and all, and all that kind of stuff like it's not viewed in the same way at all mm. um and like I said it a few times already, this is the first time I've had a conversation with somebody um, about PEDs from a perspective of public health before an addiction and that side of it. Because the, the conversations elsewhere are either, especially online, social media, because that, that's the other aspect to this. There are a lot of people online who are. Making money from their, let's say, their physiques or their um, performance, and they are juiced, mm. but they don't tell anybody they're juiced. And what mm. what happens is that when people feel the need to get to that level, or there, uh, obviously, there's lots of behaviours associated with people viewing people like that. It it does lead to poor use of these things, right? Like, and there's a lot of people. I, I mean, I can't be sure, but I believe there's a lot of fitness influencers and stuff like that. I know a lot, obviously it's an open secret in powerlifting that the strongest guys, the majority are taking something. No, no, no. Is that just, not true? It. it um, I don't want you to actually yeah. say everyone's on gear or nobody's no, on gear, get, but just, it just puts it, it puts it's like... It's untested.
1: And it's te- there's tested and there's untested. Of course, but you presume that
2: everyone untested is just blasting gear, right? No, yeah. not always. Oh, sorry, it's No, but, yeah. but that's what the
0: common conception is. No, there's plenty of people who don't, and I know many people who, at the top, who have also won some of the biggest competitions in the world, who mm. don't. It, like I said, it's, it's just, steroids is just one one variable. Yeah. In 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 the you know, what you need to do. And it does certainly certainly help. But it you know, more more people at the top are probably probably taking because they're doing more things to help them get to the top. But what makes that person that person a winner is them, not their use yeah. at all. There's yeah. plenty of people using, um, and there's a lot of people who are doing really well who are not using, yeah as well. Um the higher and higher you get to the top, yeah, there's probably more of them taking taking it. But doesn't mean there all are. Mm. Um and and the and the the one variable that you can never beat is someone with the most gifted genetics that they're on this planet. And short levers. Yeah, there are just people there <laughs> who are create who are just crazy. something. Like I like I just got a sixteen year new 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 client who wants to take up powerlifting. Um, he's 16 years old. We've been training for one year and he trains in his garage with no help whatsoever. Um, he just, he did squat bench deadlift every single day or three lifts. Like no idea how to train. Um, and he's got a hundred, he did 190 kilo squat for six, six reps. And he's 16 years old. Okay. Uh, you're not going to beat that. You are not if he, with him with good no. coaching and training, you're not going to beat, you're not going to, no one's going to beat him.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm fucking um, come
0: close. Um, He's going to be insane, so no amount of drugs is ever going to catch catch that type of no. person so again so it's just a variable that is in consideration for it, and it is not what makes the people at the top if you if there was you know if you could remove that you it, it will make a difference, but it doesn't it's not what creates the people at the top at all in any way shape or form uh, so
2: I suppose that's a really important message we need to get out there then because d- I mean, I, I don't know. Do it, for for people who are motivated by performance, are most of them going into it with the misconception that this magical compound will be a cheat code for me to be all
0: the way at the top in half the time? Or no, It's just, it's just, there's heaps of things involved. It's just, yeah. like I said, what's one variable? If you don't consider any of the other variables, the person won't make any won't make any progress. Mm. The person, the person who's made it to the top is their attitude, their discipline, their consistency. Um, however, it does enhance it. Um, and usually those people are pretty driven, driven pretty hard at that type of attitude, usually the people who do want to take something anyway. Um, and usually they, they might be a bit more intelligent about it, but. Well,
1: here's here's the other issue uh, actually is going back to the financial thing Girls, goes to get a BBL and then pretend that they did it from their glute booty band workouts and then sell those. Right. So what's the difference between a guy bashing, bashing a few oils and then saying, Oh, I did, I did this financial motivations. That's an ad, like that's an added issue to all of this. And I think it's real great that you pointed that out, mm. but then, I mean, tested and untested comps are there for a reason within strength sports. But then what about, uh, well, the whole element of cheating like, you know, you say cheat code, but let's like cheat code in terms of like, I want to get to the top of the mountain faster, but cheating, cheating is different. I mean, we've got rules about not having uh aluminum cricket bat handle or or we've got widths yeah. for certain things. We've got, you know, that, that use of these compounds shouldn't be detected in your body for sport. That's, that's a whole, that's, you know, I guess is that to else. yeah, that's a whole nother topic. Yeah. To yeah, be, yeah. Yeah. Because
0: I mean, Now, it was some of the recent news is that now they even, because now they're testing people who, who just had high levels of testosterone, who weren't taking and had been banned from competing, even though it's their own natural, natural capabilities. So they're just creating a, a, trying to create a level playing field by just looking at what hormonal profile, what substances are in your blood, so that those are the same. It's not just natural athletes competing against natural athletes anymore. It's whatever they deem as standard. Mm. Mm.
2: Um, it, it's an interesting point about the, is it cheating or is it <coughs> because I, I, I guess you could, you could extend the same logic to
1: knee wraps. They give Big, you another twenty twenty 20 kegs, don't they? It, yeah, or yeah. They, they, can they get, give you, they give you, you can, a, get really a bump good at, you can
0: get really good at using them and get like good 40, 50 kilos out yeah. of them.
2: R- right. So by the, probably by the same factor of improvement, right? So are they, is it cheating or is it, is it a marginal improvement? Like different
0: pathways of improvements. R-
2: right. So I guess cheating would be somebody else lifting the bar for you, I guess. But, um,
1: yeah. Well, you still, I mean, you still put in the eating, you still put in the diet, you still put in, compound selection, Mm. you still got under there, you still, you know, that's the thing that people back up. Nobody did that for you. Mm. But if if suddenly it was somebody, you know, saying I didn't use anything else Uh, with somebody that did, then that's where like uh it's not fair or something Mm. like that comes in.
0: These are two different conversations. yeah completely what you know and and also with our conversation talking about the use for athletes and the public health Um, perspective you're trying to take with, you know, most of the general population, there's, there's completely different motivations and they are driven by, you know, many different things Mm. and, and edge and, and athletes at a very high level are normally very educated in their choices, even in tested, even in tested federations, because people are getting busted all the time. Um, It doesn't mean they didn't know what they were doing. Of course they knew what they were doing. Um, Actually one example was, is, I can't remember which it was, might be 2014 Olympics. uh, There was one thing that was, one of them was that depending on how they test is that you have, they look at the epitestosterone to testosterone ratio in your urine tests. And there was research that showed that white tea extract helped lower the epitestosterone to testosterone ratio. And then suddenly that started popping up in everyone's blood tests to try and keep those ratios down. Um, and then there was, you know, a bunch of new records broken. They also had changed the standard of the ratio between the two. So you might have in some a lot of tested sports, they might have about a six to one ratio. So if the ratio is mm. that high, you can actually still get away with about a half a mil to a mil of testosterone with a six to one six to one ratio depending on the individual um and so there's that joke that goes around that's like natural is just under under one gram um but there, in the olympics it's a two to one from my understanding it's a two to one ratio it's so very strict and people and you can even naturally just be higher than that if your testosterone levels are naturally mm. high um, how, however, there was one where they changed, um, changed it to a four to one, four to one ratio. And there were more world records broken, uh, in that competition. Oh, in that Olympics than since the banning of anabolic steroids. Because everyone just place. wound up. It's everyone like knew <laughs> what the, what they, they are, they, so they, ed, they're educated. They know mm. how they're going to be tested. And those stats alone, that there were more records broken than that in that, in that one, uh, Olympics compared to any other one shows that they knew these stand. they know the standards. They're well-educated when they got, when they get, when they get caught, yeah, they play dumb. And a lot of them, uh, a, pra- a practice that some of these people do is they'll take other drugs to then not mask their drugs, but to get caught on something else. Rather than getting caught on the thing that's going to give them a longer ban, so they'll get, oh, wow. they'll take like a pre-workout. The pre-workout substance will come out. They'll get banned for that, and serve a, a less harsh time.
2: Oh, so that they'll they'll get pinged for pseudo- even though they were like
0: even though they had anabolic steroids in their system. And it doesn't always work because then they'll just see both, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um. But yeah, like I said, these are these are two different types mm. of population of
1: people where mm. yeah, the one centers. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing I think that's important with the public health perspective, I think it's a good parallel to draw is, you know, doctors were smoking, promoting cigarettes in what fifties. Yeah. 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 Mm. They smoked camels or whatever the ad was. <laughs> yeah. And for that period of time, everybody did that. And suddenly now we've got issues with lungs and if we've got issues with quitting and issues, you know, also all these, then money's getting thrown at social initiatives for quitting and things yep. like that. In the same way, I think on the flip side of what we're talking about, other, other bodies and entities and um, perhaps initiatives are just sort of considering, well, these choices that people are making around their compound use, etc. Cetera, et cetera, maybe maybe that's not the choice that they want to make for the rest of their lives, but it's going to have long-term consequences for them. So we need to protect them from themselves. Right. And I'm just playing devil's advocate and in, in perhaps trying to give both sides of the story here in that perhaps, you know, these choices, particularly if it's made by younger people might not be the choice that they actually want to make. Yeah. And therefore that's why there's that protective initiative and that's why the the criminality and the legal element fits and the public health sort of element fits in. It's like, ah, oh, you don't really want to do this cause whatever. Now I think that's also pretty patronizing to the person, isn't it? And that's not really going to stop them. It's sometimes mm-hmm. persistence creates res, uh, resistance creates persistence. And so that might actually be the driving factor in what makes them want to use, use more, use harder. Some people don't like being told no. So, yeah, I mean, really it just needs to be considered a bit more broadly, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I thought I'd just at least put that out there that that's probably one of the reasons. Yeah. I guess it's a bit of an art form to do
0: doing, doing that as well. It's just having those social skills and experience behind, behind using people having, having used. So I guess those are the type of people you want in your peer peer system because, you know, I don't say they, they can't. I just teach them how and what's, you know, give them an explanation and not leave it, not letting it come off the table and just showing them alternatives and better alternatives or better way to use and, um, and how they should come off. And, you know, if it leads to them not, not taking it, then yeah, so be it. And usually in a lot of the cases, it just a lot of the cases when it is brought up to me brought up with me it's uh um definitely is usually not a, a sufficient not so, i can say, can't say there is a sufficient reason but it's like here's a here's a solution here's another solution um to solving that problem and then I can also see see where where problems can occur if they do take it, you know especially if it's driven the body image one is the big one. If it is driven a lot by body image, it says it doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna fix that problem of your, that body image problem. Um, mm-hmm. Especially when we're talking about women, I've seen probably more often than not cause more mm-hmm. body image problems um, in different perspectives, you know, where, you know, they'll either want to chase more or the fact that they weren't ready for what what it's gonna to do to their body um, in some cases where that they want to take it because they want to look they want to you know look leaner and look more toned or whatever it is end up building a heap of muscle and it's like I wasn't here to try and gain gain weight or build muscle they might they, you, know, mm. you know so they got a the result of the in, not understanding the intention behind what it was going to do to them and then uh, i see women worse off mentally from it mm. so But me, I only know that from experience and reading, and and probably more so experience because there isn't that again huge, huge amounts of information. I've always been about just protect, Mm -hmm. you know, harm reduction and and optimizing performance. So those are the two kind of areas I would look at. Um, But they go both hand in hand perfectly well because what enhances performance also enhances. We also look looks after people's um health is also what usually enhances performance mm. um like i was saying like low low less is more and usually less is
1: not so harmful um cuz you're taking that sustainability long term sort of approach really, yeah like, oh yeah someone good. yeah 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 sure